Uh, how many of you have noticed that we live in a news saturated culture? Raise your hand. News saturated, right? I mean, 24-7 news cycle. I'm old enough to remember when if you wanted to watch the news, you watched it at 6 o'clock and... 11 o'clock. How many of y'all old enough to remember that, right? Y'all old. That's what that means, right? Because now, now, and I love this because you might be like me. I'm a news junkie. Raise your hand if you're a news junkie. You love news, okay? We ought to talk afterwards, support group. But I love news, right? I'm a news junkie. You can turn it on any time of the day, right? CNN, Fox, whatever. You put the initials together, right? It's on there. And so we live in this news-saturated culture. But it has given rise to this new terminology. And there's this new terminology that we're hearing a lot lately in this new saturated culture. See if you've ever heard this called fake news. Raise your hand if you've ever heard fake news, right? Well, the world's fake news. It's news that's made up. It's news that somehow is made up and hopefully you'll believe the news so it's reported as true so that somehow I might make my point or I might somehow degrade someone else's point. I kind of Googled it, and here's kind of a definition you'll find online, fake news, new terminology. Used to refer to non-satirical news stories which have originated online, social media, fake news websites, or in the traditional news media have no basis in fact, but are presented as and believed to be actually accurate. The intention and purpose behind fake news is important. What appears to be fake news may be, in fact, news satire, which uses exaggeration sometimes, right? introduces non-factual elements and is intended to amuse or maybe intended to make a point or maybe intended to mislead, to gain financially or politically. Fake news. Now, here's what I want to tell you. Fake news is new terminology, but can I tell you something? Fake news might be new terminology, but it's not a new phenomenon, right? It's 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 not a new phenomenon. Fake news has been going on for a long time because there's been people who report things that are true, and when they report them as true, what happens is people all of a sudden repeat them as true, and when they get repeated as true, enough times, all of a sudden, they get believed as true. In fact, I can prove this. Some of y'all, your American history and what you know about American history, there's some fake news or there's some things that are not accurate about the way that you were taught in U.S. history. Now, I'm not here to blow up your academic experience, but uh, there are some things that I was taught when I was a kid that just are not totally accurate. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of Paul Revere. Paul Revere. And he did this ride, and on this ride he said, the British are coming, didn't he? No, he didn't. He probably didn't yell anything. In fact, accurately put, if he had yelled something, it would have put in jeopardy his message. And so he probably was a little more quiet, a little more intentional. And he more than likely did not yell the British were coming because the people he would have been yelling that to thought they were still British. And so more than likely what he would have said, not yelled, was the regulars are coming. The regulars are coming. In fact, Paul Revere gets a lot of press, but you need to know this about the story. He's not the only one that went out. But they sent people in all kinds of directions out of Boston. And he actually went with two other guys, and those three guys went off. And Paul Revere's ride was the least illustrious of them all. Because he, Paul, of the three that went with him, he was the one that got caught by the British. And he got his horse taken away, and he was sent back to Lexington on foot. In fact, we probably never would have heard of Paul Revere if it wasn't for a poem written by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. The truth is, he's the one that made Paul Revere famous. 
How many of you have ever heard of Betsy Ross? Raise your hand. Betsy Ross, she's the one that is given credit for creating our flag, right? She's the one who came up with and made the original flag, right? No, not so much, right? That's not really how the story goes. She probably contributed to it, but she's not the one who is responsible. There's no historical evidence to suggest she was solely responsible. More than likely, it was a collaborative effort, and it was led by a lady named Frances Hopkinson. Never heard of her, right? In fact, Ross never claimed to be the designer of the flag during her lifetime. She only noted that she was the person who thought it would be good to go with a five-pointed, stay with me, a five-pointed star over a six-pointed star. And the reason she thought a five-pointed star was better than a six-pointed star because it was easier to sew, is what she said. How in the world did this story get to us? Well, go figure. This story got to us because it was started by somebody in her own family, her grandson, He told the story of how George Washington came into her store one day, was so impressed at how she made a five-pointed star that he commissioned Ross to create the entire flag on the spot, which sounds like a great story. The problem is it's not true. Fake news, right? It's also fake news when it comes to, or there's things that get reported and repeated that aren't true when it comes to the signing of our Declaration of Independence. We shoot off fireworks on July the 4th, right? It's exciting. It's the day that we celebrate the signing of our Declaration of Independence. But the truth is, the signing of the Declaration of Independence did not occur on July the 4th. After the Second Continental Congress voted to declare independence on July the 2nd, the final language of the document was approved on July the 4th, printed and distributed on the 4th and 5th of July. However, the actual signing of the document happened on, anybody know? August 2nd, 1776. That'll blow your summer holiday, won't it, right? You see here, the point is this, is that things get reported that aren't quite true. Then they get repeated, 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 and eventually they're embraced as true, right? And whereas it may be really, and it really is, inconsequential what you believe about Paul Revere. I mean, if you, if you want to have the, the idea the British are coming, that's cool. It may be inconsequential what you believe about Betsy Ross. It may be inconsequential about the actual date that you celebrate the signing of the Declaration of in- Independence. What is not inconsequential, listen close, what is not inconsequential is what you believe about Jesus. You see, here's what I know. We live in a culture that is saturated with Jesus. You'd you'd be hard-pressed to find people who haven't heard the name of Jesus. People are talking about Jesus, and there's all kinds of things that are reported about Jesus. And those things that are reported about Jesus, you know what happens? They get repeated. And then those things that get repeated, eventually they all of a sudden begin to be believed. And they create this cultural picture of Jesus. And many of us in this room, we have this cultural picture of Jesus. And this cultural picture of Jesus that some of us have in this room are things that have been reported, repeated, and we have embraced. And it's the picture that we've always had of Jesus. Some of us got this picture of Jesus. He's got feathered hair and deep blue eyes, right? Looks like he ought to be in a boy band. I grew up with this picture, right? I mean, it's like that must be, when we get to heaven, I think that's what Jesus is going to look like, right? We think to ourselves, because those pictures showed up in churches and so on. How many of you have seen that picture before? Come on. Yeah, most of you. Okay. Right? Others of us, we have a picture of Jesus. I call it the stoic Jesus, right? I mean, this is the picture of Jesus where you, you see him portrayed in movies or, or in artwork, and you're like, I'm not even sure that guy likes people, right? 
I mean, you look at him like, I don't know that he wants to be my friend. I mean, I, I'm not even sure. Then there's even bizarre pictures, like, like the Rambo Jesus, right? Like, I want a Jesus that's muscular and masculine, and he's a warrior, right? Or, or this is my favorite, the hippie Jesus, right? He's in love, everybody, peace, right? Right? And then there's people who have a picture of Jesus that gets stuck in a holiday, right? And so we have a picture of sweet baby Jesus, but we never get beyond that. What's the point? The point is this, is that we develop these pictures of Jesus based on what was reported to us and then repeat it to us. And then eventually we have embraced it as true. It's why I want to spend the next several weeks talking about Jesus. You know why I want to do that? Here's why I want to do it. Because I believe, we believe here that what you believe about Jesus, you ready? What you believe about Jesus is the most important thing about you. What you believe about Jesus is the most important thing about you. And so here's what I want to do the next several weeks. I want to look at Jesus, not as has been reported, but I want to look at Jesus and who he said he was. I want to look at Jesus in his own words. That's why you have your Bibles open to the book of John, because in the book of John, there's seven times where Jesus said, I am, and he filled in the blank. Jesus said, you want to know who I am? I'll tell you who I am. This is who I am. And he says, I am, and he filled in the blank. And so for the next several weeks, we're going to look at who Jesus said he was. And here's why that's important, because I think, and I believe, you don't have to agree with me this morning. I'm just telling you what I think, what I believe, studying the Bible, that it's only when I know, ready, only when I know who Jesus is that I really can know who I am. And it's only when I know who I am that I'll know what to do. It's only when I know who Jesus is that I'll know who I am, and only when I know who I am that I'll know what to do. And so I think this is so important. Can I challenge you a couple ways? One is this. I think this series is so important because what you believe about Jesus is the most important thing about you. Here's my challenge to you. First, I would challenge you to come every week of this series. This is not the preacher saying, you ought to be in church every week. Don't hear that. I'm saying, I think this conversation is so important. I would challenge you. I know for some of you that's harder than others. I get it. I understand that. But I would challenge you to do everything you can to be here and bring somebody with you. I challenge you to pick up one of our devotionals that we provide. I would challenge you to even beyond that, read the book of John during this series. Like You're like, I've never read the Bible. Okay, that's fine. Open it to the book of John, and for the next six weeks, read the book of John. It's going to fill out some of our conversation. I challenge you to get into a grace group because I think this is one of the most important conversations we could ever have. And here's the deal. When you get to John 6, we find the first of those statements where Jesus says, I am. And here's what he says. If you're filling your notes in, you ought to write this in. He says, I am the bread of life. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Now, now here's the deal. Uh, for us 21st century, sitting here in Norton, Ohio, I'm like, okay, I probably can make assumptions as to what he meant by that. But like, that's kind of weird, right? I mean, somebody walks into your house and says, hey, I'm bread, right? You're like, I don't get it. So we got to understand what does he mean when he says that. In order to understand what he means when he says that, we got to catch up to speed because you got your Bibles open to John chapter 6. But here's the deal. You shouldn't just drop in and drop out of the Bible. There's a lot that's gone on before John chapter 6. In fact, in John chapter 6, you ready? John chapter 6, Jesus is at his most popular point. In his life. Like he is at celebrity status. And if you had lived first century when Jesus was walking, you might have heard about some of the things that he was doing. Right? Maybe you would have heard about what took place in John chapter 2. Because in John chapter 2, Jesus showed up to a wedding. And maybe you would have heard about that. Because at that wedding, 
they were serving wine, and embarrassingly enough, they ran out of wine, and so they're like, hey, Jesus. And Jesus turned the water into wine. And maybe you would have heard about Jesus, life of the party Jesus. Or maybe you would have heard about what John 2 says at the latter part of the chapter, that one day Jesus showed up to church, and in that church, they were selling things they weren't praying And he recognized that they were doing what they shouldn't have been doing and they weren't doing what they should be doing. You know what he did? He cleared the place out. He turned the tables over. He created a scene. He created a ruckus. And maybe you would have heard about that Jesus. Or maybe you would have heard about the Jesus in John chapter 4. Because by the time you get to John chapter 6, John 4 has already taken place. And in John chapter 4, a whole town, a whole town of Samaritans came out and put their faith and attached their lives to Jesus. And they did that as a result of a single, unique, unusual conversation he had with one Samaritan woman by a well. It's interesting. Or maybe, just maybe, you would have heard of Jesus because in John chapter 5, he did something else pretty incredible. He came across this dude and he had been sick for 38 years. Bedridden, 38 years. And when Jesus comes across this guy, he says, hey buddy, do you want to get well? interesting. The guy's like, I've been trying. I can't do what is necessary to get well. Jesus looks at the guy and he says, hey, pick up your mat and walk. And the guy picks up his mat and walks. And maybe you would have heard of how Jesus miraculously healed this guy who'd been sick for 30 years. I don't know. But whatever the case, when you get to John 6, you need to know this. It'll make the story make sense. He is celebrity status. He is very, very, very popular. In fact, he will be no more popular than he is in John chapter 6. He is so popular that when you get to the beginning of John chapter 6, there's a very famous story that happens in John 6. It's the only miracle Jesus does that's recorded in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because when you get to John 6, the crowd is big. You say, Dan, how big? Thanks for the question. It's this big. There are 5,000 men. Don't be offended, women. But in that culture, they didn't count women and they didn't count children. So most scholars think this. Most scholars think the crowd was not just 5,000, but it was twenty to 25,000 people. That's a big crowd, by the way. And he looks out at this crowd, and he's teaching this crowd, and they're gathering around. They're interested. Jesus is creating quite a stir. And all of a sudden, it gets dinner time. And Jesus realizes this crowd needs something to eat. I love this. He looks at one of his followers who happens to be named Philip, and he says, Hey, where do you think we're going to get something for all these people to eat, you know? Philip kind of looks back, and he's like, There's like twenty to 25,000 people here, Jesus. And this is what Philip says. He says, Jesus, it would take us a year and a half worth of our salaries to pay to be able to buy them supper. I love that, right? Because Philip is very economically minded. He's like, man, I don't think we can do this. And yet, while he's saying that, there's another one of the disciples. His name's Andrew. And he's resourceful because what he's doing while Philip's answering the question, he's combing through the crowd. He's like, man, I wonder what we have we can throw together. And he finds, of all those people, think about this, 20,000 people. And there's one little boy who thought, maybe I ought to take something to eat, Right? And Andrew brings that lunch to Jesus. He said, hey, there's this little boy, but he's got five loaves and two fish. And, and, and then Andrew says to Jesus, like, I don't know, what is that with this many people? And then Jesus does something that I think his disciples would have been like, what is going on? Because Jesus says, have him sit down. Give me that boy's lunch. 
And Jesus then thanks God for the lunch. And then he begins to break the bread and the fish. And he begins to distribute it to his disciples who distributes it to the crowd. He distributes to the disciples. They distribute to the crowd. They eat. He continues to distribute until the Bible says they've had enough. They've had their fill. They've had all they wanted. He stops at that point distributing. And then he looks at his disciples and he says this. All right, guys, now. Why don't you go gather up the leftovers? Nobody thought he'd be saying that at the beginning of this story, right? And these dudes go out and they comb the crowd and they come back with, don't miss this, they come back with 12 baskets full of leftovers. This is where the story gets interesting to me because that's a fascinating part of the story. But at that point in the story, the crowd light bulbs start going on. Because they would have been familiar with the Old Testament. And the Old Testament promised that there was going to be this prophet Messiah who was going to come rescue God's people. And so they start thinking to themselves, I don't know. Maybe he's it. Anybody can do that because he did this miracle that didn't just help one of us. It helped all of us. And so the Bible says this, that they were so enthralled by what Jesus did that they wanted to take him by force and make him their king. They wanted to, he's going to be the bread king, right? I mean, he's the king. We got bread for the rest of our life, right? We're good to go. And yet Jesus knew something, and that's this. Jesus knew that there is no way you can force somebody to be the king who already is the king. And so here's what the Bible says. The Bible says Jesus, knowing they were going to do this, he withdrew himself, and he went into the mountain by himself. No disciples, just by himself to pray. Meanwhile, the crowd's there, the disciples are there, so the disciples start talking. They say, hey, I think we ought to go a couple miles across the sea to the other side of the sea. And so they get in the boat. Some of them were fishermen, and they head across the sea. Problem is this. They get halfway across there, and all of a sudden, storm breaks out. Such a vicious storm that they become afraid, and then all of a sudden, they see Jesus coming towards them. He ain't riding a canoe, though. He's walking on the water. Jesus gets in the boat. Next thing you know, they're on the other side, on the shore. Next day, the crowd wakes up and they're like, man, I wonder, I wonder where our bread king is. I wonder where the king is, the, the, the one who can give us bread every day. We saw his disciples get in a boat, head over there. Maybe we ought to go over there and look for him. And when they get there, they find him. And that's where our story picks up in verse 25, and it's fascinating. If you have your Bibles, follow me. If you don't feel comfortable using a Bible, we're going to throw the scripture on the screen. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Rabbi simply means teacher. It's like, okay, we saw you go to the mountains. When did you happen to get here? Verse 26, Jesus answered, this is, I find it funny, not everybody does, but Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Look here a second. They asked Jesus, when did you get here? And did you notice Jesus doesn't answer their question? In fact, if you study the life of Jesus, there's a lot of times he doesn't. Because he knows something and there's something deeper, bigger going on. And he says, I know what's going on, guys. He said, you're not looking for me. Listen close. You're not looking for me because you're curious about who I am. You're looking for me because of what I did. You're looking for me because you're full. You've had lots of fish, lots of bread. Then he says something that is, that is fascinating, verse 27. He says, do not work for food that spoils, 
but for food that endures to eternal life. In your Bibles, and I recommend you do this, you ought to circle that word life. Circle the word life. Which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying, I'm not frustrated you came here asking for something. I am more disappointed that you're asking for the wrong thing. Because what he wants them to know is like, you had this big meal that satisfied your hunger, and yet I want to satisfy a hunger that is much more significant and deeper in you than anything bread or fish could fulfill. That word life that I had you circle, this is fascinating to me. I hope it is to you. Jesus could have used several words in order to say the word life. He could have used the word bios. That's where we get the word biology, okay? But, but, but bios is simply my physical life. And so uh, they needed bread in order to stay alive physically. Jesus didn't use bios. He used a word zoe, just forget that. But this word means something more than just my physical life. It means the quality of my life, the significance of my life, the purpose of my life. It is a word rich in meaning. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, listen, I know you were hungry back there. I gave you bread, but here's the deal. There is a hunger inside of you. There is a hunger inside of all of us that is deeper than that. And if you simply look for a bios solution to fill your Zoe hunger, you're always going to be hungry. That's what he's saying. He's saying, don't look for a temporary solution to something that's much bigger. So the conversation goes on. Then they ask him, well, what must we do to do the works God requires? That's fascinating because that's the question every religion has asked from the beginning of time. All right, sign me up. What's the ten steps? What's the seven pillars? What's the five gateways? What's, what do I do? What, what's the work we got to do? Jesus says something that if you write in your Bibles, and you should, I would highlight, underline, circle, star, verse 29. Jesus said, the work of God is this. What's the work of God? Do these ten things. Nope. Carry out these seven. Th- no. He says, here's the work of God. Believe. The work of God is to believe the one he has sent. He says, you want to do the work of God? It's believe. Place your faith in me. And then look at verse 30. They ask what I think is a head-scratching question. They ask him, what? guys, it's okay to read your Bible. These are real people. And like, what? They said, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Now, I don't know. I'm glad Jesus wasn't a smart aleck because I might have been a smart aleck. Because can you almost see Jesus like, uh, I don't know. How about feed 25,000 people with a kid's Lunchable? Is that good? I don't know, you know? I mean, anybody else fascinated that they're asking this question? It's like, what sign will you do? And then what they do is they go Old Testament on him. Verse 31, they say, our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And you're like, what in the world is that? Well, if you're not familiar with that story, let me give you a real brief. Exodus chapter 3, guy named Moses, obscure shepherd. He fled from Egypt 40 years. He's a shepherd. This bush in the wilderness starts burning. Fascinating. God starts talking to him through this bush. It's like, whoa. And God says to Moses, like, you obscure shepherd that ran away from Egypt, I want you to go back there and lead my people who are slaves in Egypt out. If, If you know the story... Moses ain't really into that. He's not really keen on it. He's like, ah, I don't think I'm qualified. 
I'm not the guy. But eventually, as he questions God, he asks a very, very important question. He says, okay, suppose I go. Who should I tell Pharaoh is sending me? I love it. God says, I'll tell you what my name is. My name is I am. You tell him I am is sending you. Very fascinating. Moses goes back eventually, equipped with the name of God, I am. He goes before Pharaoh. If you know the story, ten plagues later, all of a sudden Pharaoh says, get out of here, cross the Red Sea. And what happens? Children of Israel are in the wilderness. Doesn't take long until they're what? Hungry, right? And they're whining, they're complaining, they're like, oh, there's nothing to eat. We had more to eat back in Egypt. And all of a sudden, what does God do? He provides this white substance called manna. And every morning they would come out and they would find this white substance called manna, which you know what manna means? The word manna simply means this. What is this? What is this? And he said, I want you to take enough every day for that day, no more. No more. And I'm going to provide this for your journey. It's fascinating because they think somehow maybe Jesus might be the next Moses. And maybe you could provide bread for us every day. Verse 32, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, it's not Moses who's given you the bread from heaven. But it's my Father who gives you key, true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus is saying this, listen, 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 you're mixing some things up. You want another meal, and you're going to so want another meal that you're going to miss the Messiah. You want somehow for me to give you a temporary solution, and you're going to miss the significance of what I want to give you. You simply want a bio solution to your Zoe hole. Look at verse 34. Sir, always give us this bread. I think I would have said the same. Jesus says this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. This is what Jesus said. He said, listen, you're looking for what? Manna means what is this, and you should look, be looking for who. Because the true bread from heaven is a who is this question, and the answer is me. It's fascinating. Here's the deal. These guys get frustrated. because, like, man, Jesus, you know, we just wanted you to be our bread king. Why can't you be like Moses, right? And and then they say to Jesus, we know where you came from. You're trying to make us believe you're all that in a bag of chips, right? I mean, who do you think you are? And here's the deal in verse 47. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here's the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for, there's our word again, the life of the world. He's saying, I am the bread that gives life. I'm the bread of life. What in the world does Jesus mean? Listen, this is so important this morning. This is so important. I think there's three things that help me understand what Jesus is saying here when he says, I am the bread of life. First is this. I want you to write it down this way. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, I think what he wants us to see is this, is that I was broken to save you today. I was the bread that was broken so that you could be saved today. 
You see, here's where we need to maybe get some understanding culturally. Because in their culture, bread was a staple, more so than ours. It would have been very rare for them to eat meat. In other words, if they would have killed the fatted calf, that means there's big celebration going on, right? So very rare for them to eat meat. So bread was necessary for them to live. That's why Jesus said in verse 51, I am the living bread, comes down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live. This bread is my flesh. We'll get back to that in a minute, which I will give for the life of the world. They needed to eat bread to live. Think about this. You ever thought about this, that in order for you to live, something's got to die? You ever thought about that? Oh, don't look at me judgmental. I mean, here's the deal. That chicken salad you enjoyed last night, some poor innocent chicken had to give his life so that you could have supper, right? Can I get an amen? Some of y'all, all all you can think about right now is when's this preacher going to get done because I want to go have a good hamburger, right? And here's what I tell you, that hamburger that you cannot quit thinking about, some poor innocent cow going to have to give his life so that you can live, right? Some of y'all... Some of y'all are bacon lovers. Can I get an amen? Bacon lovers, right? In order for you to enjoy that bacon, some poor little innocent piggy going to have to give his life, right? And some of y'all, you're into March Madness. And so you, you've got your mindset of all afternoon you're going to watch basketball, you're going to grill some hot dogs, and in order for you to enjoy those hot dogs, I have no idea what had to die for you to enjoy those hot dogs, all right? <laughs> but but the, that just grossed me out just thinking about it, right? But... But, but the deal is this, something has to die for you to live in their culture. In their culture, bread was the staple. In order for bread to somehow make me whole, it has to be broken so that I can consume it. That's all he's saying, that I am the bread broken so that you can have life. It's what caused him to say this. He says, I'm the only bread that's going to break for you. Verse 53, truly, stay with me, very truly, I tell you, you with me? Unless, you with me? You eat the flesh of the Son of Man. Hello. What? Come on. It's okay for that to bother you. It's okay. We're going to be true around here and honest, right? Unless I do what? He's not done. And drink his blood. Okay. Where did I come this morning, right? You have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day, for my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Look here a second. Let's, let's, just, let's not be afraid of it, but let's talk about it. What in the world is he talking about? Because I will tell you this, it sounds weird when you just read it, and there are all kinds of people throughout church history that have taken this to say, well, somehow when you take communion, this turns into the blood of Jesus, this turns into the body of Jesus miraculously. <laughs> that is not what he's saying here. The best way for me to illustrate what he's saying here is this. If I were to go home this afternoon and my wife were to fix me food because she loves me, and so she knows what it is that I need to be healthy, She knows what it is that I like, and she knows how I like it cooked. So let's say she sets it out on the counter, and she said, Dan, there's some good food on the counter for you. It is good to eat, it smells good, and it is really good for you because I got some eating issues, okay? And she's like, you can eat all of that, and and, and I just want you to know it's on the counter. Here's the deal. I could look at her and say, sweetheart, that looks so great. That food that you fixed for me, it looks so wonderful. I could repeat back to her the information she gave me. Sweetheart, I'm glad that it is nutritious. 
nutritious, it's healthy, it's not going to harm me. But here's the deal. You know what I'm getting ready to say because you already know it. That that food that's good for me, that she made for me, that smells great, that is nutritious, is absolutely no benefit to me unless I what? Unless I eat it. Unless I internalize it. It's simply external information. It smells good. It looks good. It has good information. What Jesus is saying here, you have to hear this. He's using a metaphor. He's using a picture. And he wants them to know something. He wants them to know that it's not. He wants you to know something this morning. It's not enough for you to know the facts about Jesus' death on the cross. It's not enough for you to watch it in a movie, sing it in a song, read it in the Bible. That's not enough. It's not even enough. I'm going to offend some of you, and I apologize, but you got to hear this. It's not even enough for you to have a cross hanging in your house or around your neck. That's not enough. That's the food on the counter. What he's saying is the only way bread of life will ever have any benefit for you, to you, is if you see Jesus as the bread that was broken in your place. His body broken For you in your place. His blood shed for the forgiveness of my sin. Only way. Only way that I have life is for me to internalize it, to make it personal. Here's the deal. The only way for me to have the benefit of what Jesus did is for me to drink it in, to digest it, to ingest it, to say yes to Jesus. Yes, I believe that for me. Has nothing to do with what my mama believed. Has nothing to do with what what it is that my daddy believed. But it's like, I'm going to ingest this. I'm going to believe this. Some of you have heard the phrase, ask Jesus into your heart. Raise your hand if you've ever heard that. You won't find it in the Bible. (laughs) But but we've all heard it, right? You won't find it in the Bible. But i got to believe that somewhere that began from John 6. Because I think what Jesus is saying is like, listen, you might know the facts, but it's just a religious experience on the counter until you drink it in, until you swallow that truth for yourself. You have to make it personal or it has absolutely no benefit whatsoever. Can I ask you a question this morning? Can I ask you a question? Have you? Don't answer too quick. I'm not asking if you know it. I'm not asking if you're familiar with it. I'm asking, have you swallowed that truth in your life? Have you said yes to Jesus? Because there's something else that he says that's fascinating. In fact, I'll be honest with you, and I don't say this often. What he says in verse 57 about knocked me off my seat this week as I was studying. Never seen it before. I just, just never captured my attention before. You with me? Verse 57, get your pens right in your Bible. It says, just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. Look at this. So the one who feeds, you ought to circle that word, feeds on me, will live because of me. Can I take you somewhere? How many of y'all was good in English in school? Raise your hand. You were good. Got A's. All right, put your hand down. Right? How many of y'all weren't so good? Right? Come on, join the club. I see you, Greg. Pastor Greg, no good in English, right? So I'm going to take you somewhere. You're no good in English? Here's the deal. That word feeds, you ready? Everybody look at me, is a present active participle. You're like, is he talking Greek? What's he saying right now, right? It's a present active participle. Everybody say it out loud with me. It's a present active participle. You say, what in the world does that mean? I have no idea. No, here's what it means, okay? It means that it is something that happens now and continues. 
It is something that is continuous. Why is that important? This is so powerful. It is important because God wants us to know that the manna that he provided in the wilderness to save the Israelites was the same manna that he provided to sustain them, to strengthen them. And so he wanted them to know this about him, the bread of life, that Jesus is the bread of life, and he was broken to save us today. But you ought to write this down. He is the bread of life, and he's saying, I am provided to give you strength every day for the rest of your days. Jesus says this, that the same bread that saves you is the same bread that sustains you. He's saying, don't just feed on me the day you get saved, but I want you to spend the rest of your life, no matter what you're facing, some of you in dark times, some of you on mountaintops, but whatever you're facing, wherever you're at in the wilderness journey, I want you to feed on me. That's what he's saying. I read a story. I, I, I had to reread it. I'm like, is this true? Like, it was about a guy who was passionate about feeding starving people. So he took food to them, namely bread, and he'd go all over the place, all over the world. And he would take bread everywhere, bread trucks, and he would just bread, just passing out because he wanted to help starving people. One day, he went off the radar. Like, where's, where's he at? When they found him, he was dead. He had died in his truck. His truck that was full of bread. And when they did the autopsy, you know what they found? They found that he died of star that's crazy isn't it somehow he had never connected and applied the fact that the bread that saves is the bread that could sustain and so he ended up dying because there was no strength no sustenance in him here's where some of us that have said yes to Jesus look here a second here's where we've lost our way Here's where some of us have lost our way. We eat the bread, the bread of life, so to speak, that saves us. But the moment we eat the bread that saves us, we begin chasing other bread in our life. We begin to think there's other bread in our life that's going to make us find our identity, give us purpose, bring satisfaction give us significance, make us happy. And what Jesus is saying, no, 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 I am the bread of life. And what we do when we do that, listen close, this is a hard teaching. This is a hard teaching. What we do when we say, yes, Jesus, I want you to be the bread that saves me, but I'm gonna spend the rest of my life chasing the bread of sex, chasing the bread of my business. That's what's gonna bring me my significance. Chasing the bread of relationship, chasing athletic prowess. That's what's gonna make me big and bad and, and make me significant. When I do that, I become just like the crowd. You know what the crowd did? They wanted to make Jesus their bread king. And so what I end up doing is say, Jesus, I'm all about you. Now I want you to be the king who provides me the bread that I'm chasing. And Jesus said, I ain't nobody's bread king. I am the king who is the bread of life. See, Jesus said, those who feed on me, not just to save them, but to sustain them, the ones who have life. What's he saying there? This is so important, guys. I've heard from people all morning. This is so important. Here's what he's saying. He said, I want you to every day feed, feed on your relationship with me. Here's why this is important, because Jesus wants to have a relationship, a daily relationship with us. Here's why I know this is important, because the people in your life that end up changing your life are the people that you have a relationship with. The people that you are significantly attached to. 
the truth is, and I'm sure there's exceptions to this, but how many in the room have ever heard of a guy named LeBron James? Raise your hand. Ever heard? If you've never heard of him, you need to get out more, okay? If you live in, you know, he's a place for Cleveland. How many of you are big fans of his? You like, you root for the Cavaliers, right? How many of you ever seen him play in person? Raise your hand. How many of you have met him? I'm kind of curious of that. Anybody? Okay, some of you have met him. That's interesting. I'd love to talk to you sometime, right? But here's the deal. If I ask you one more question, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand on this. If I ask you, for how many of you has he changed your life? Probably not as many of you. You know why? Because you're a fan. You're a fan. It's fun to applaud. Man, he's, he shoots incredible basket. He's an incredible basketball player. Here's the deal. Jesus, ready? Jesus is not looking for more fans. He's looking for followers who will feed on their relationship with him. You're saying, well, how in the world do you feed on Jesus? How do you feed on your relationship? Don't make the Bible so hard. I beg of you, don't make the Bible so hard. How do you feed on your relationship with Jesus? Well, I think about how do I feed on my relationship with Jennifer? You know how I do that? I spend time with her. Like, if I'm going to feed on anything, i got to kind of show up to the table of that relationship. I'm going to spend time with her. How do I feed on my relationship with Jennifer? I drink in the words that she speaks. I share what's going on inside of me. How do I, how do I feed on my relationship with Jennifer? I'm part of the same family she's part of. We do the same things together. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, listen, feed on me. Feed on your relationship with me. I want you to spend time with me. Don't make, listen, dial in now. Some of you have known Christ for a long time. Don't, don't go home and just do your devotions, check the box. Don't go home and, 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 and do the five things. Well, this is the disciplines of the Christian life. Check, 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 check. He's like, no, I want you, when you read the Bible, I want you to look and listen for me. Feed on me. Because why? I'm the bread of life. You know what? I, th- this has happened to me. I'm sure it's happened to some of you. But here's the deal. We can create a Christianity without a Christ. And Jesus said, no, I'm the bread. Here's why this is important. Some of you are in the darkest moment of your life. You're like, how in the world am I going to get through this? Because people pat me on the back, not on the head, hug me, say, Jesus said, I know, feed on me. Feed on me. The bread that saves you is the bread that will strengthen you and it will sustain you. Don't go chasing bread that's going to disappoint you. But I want you to feed on the bread that's going to give you strength for the moment. And then he says something else interesting, verse 58, and then i got to be done. You with me? Verse 58, this is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will, there's our word, live forever. Look here a second. got to be quick with this. He says, I am the bread that was broken to save you today. I'm provided. I'm provided to strengthen you every day. But then he says something interesting, and it's all revolving around that word eternal life, those words eternal life. And here's the deal. Some of you all grown up in church, and you hear this term eternal life, and, and I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, people used to scare you to death when it came to talking about eternal life. They'd like talk about something like, how many of y'all want to live forever? You're like, me, you know? I mean, who wouldn't, right? Because when, 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 when you were taught, when I was taught eternal life, we were taught it in terms of, listen close, quantity. And so the, the way I always looked at eternal life was, that's just the extension of life. So when I die, I keep on living. 
right? And so when I think about life, it's just the extension of life. It's all about quantity. And yet Jesus doesn't use the word bios. He says, no, no, eternal life isn't just about extending your life after you die. That's not what I'm talking about. But what he wants them to see is this, is that this life, the bread of life gives, is something that is much more than just quantity. It's quality. And it's not just about extending your life after you die, but it's about you experiencing, are you ready? It's about you experiencing abundant life right now forever. That's what he's talking about. Blew my mind this week. He said, I'm the bread of life. And here's the deal. Some of you need to hear this this morning. He says, I promise. I promise to be enough to satisfy you forever. I promise that if you'll feed on me, just as those disciples went around like, man, how did we get 12 baskets full? He says, if you feed on me, I promise I know it's hard right now. I know that you can't understand. You don't know what's going on. But I promise that I'm going to be enough to satisfy you. Begs the question. Jesus is the bread of life broken to save, provide it to strengthen, and promises to satisfy, then what's it matter? What difference does it make? I'd love to give you two implications. I'm going to invite Ryan and the band to come out and set up, but I'd love for you to write these down. Because if Jesus is the bread of life, then there's two things that Jesus wants us to hear this morning, and then we're done. And that's this. First is this. If Jesus is truly the bread of life, then he invites all of us to come and to believe this morning. He invites everybody in this room to come and to believe. John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And the question for you this morning is, have you? Now listen close. Don't, don't tune me out right yet. Because if you read John 6, I hope you will. Jesus says this in the middle of the story. He says, my father draws people to me. And I believe every time I tell the story of Jesus that God is at work somewhere drawing people to himself. And you might be one. You might be one this morning that you look on the counter of your religious experience and you know all about the facts and you know about Jesus dying, but you've never swallowed it for yourself. You've never said, yes, Jesus, I believe that you died for me, that your blood was shed for my sin. This morning, he says, you can come and believe. You can't live. Spiritually, there is no way for you to live But I'm working hard for God. He says, no, it's about believing in me. He says, come and believe. Truth is, I've been thinking all morning about a lot of us in this room who are followers of Jesus. And what we've done is we've come and realized Jesus is the bread that was broken to save us, but we start chasing other bread so that we could be significant, to fill our appetites, to give us purpose, to fill this emptiness. And he's like, no, no, you've got a Christianity with no Christ. You're, you're looking for bread that's going to get moldy. And that's where some of you are at. You've stopped feeding on Jesus. You're checking off the boxes. You're going through the routine. You're jumping through the hoops. Here's what he says to you this morning. He says, feed on me. He says, I'm the bread that brings life. I'm the only bread that's going to sustain and strengthen you this morning. If you 
you read the story, this is really hard teaching. Because when you read the story, here's what you find. Jesus started with a crowd of 25,000. He ends with a crowd of 12. The bulk of the crowd looked at him and like, woo. They walked away. They're like, what in the world? Jesus at that point turned around and looked at his disciples and he says, what about y'all? You going to go too? Peter says something interesting, and some of you need to hear this. He's like, Peter has to be looking at the crowd walking away. He's like, man, Jesus, you know how to get rid of a crowd. We had 25,000. What are you doing? But even though I don't understand what you're doing at this moment, even though I'm not comfortable with it because there's only 12 of us left, even though I might not totally get everything, Jesus, he says, I'm not going anywhere. He says, because I believe you're the only one that has the words of life. I believe you're the Holy One. Even if I might not be able to logically, rationally make sense of everything going on this moment, he says, I'm staying here. See, here's the deal. Jesus invites us to come and believe, but then he asks us to stay and worship. Because here's what Jesus knows, that whatever it is that you're chasing, whatever the bread is you're chasing this morning, that's the very thing you're worshiping. And Jesus says, here's where life is. I'd love to invite you to bow your heads for a moment. We're going to finish with the song that we sang earlier. There's power to it. I'd love it if possible if you just stay in the room. Just stay in the room. Nobody leaving. I know I took some liberties. and But some of you this morning have never said yes to Jesus. Why not right now in your seat? Say, Jesus, I believe, I want to swallow and just make this truth my reality this morning. I want to say yes to Jesus. I want Jesus to be my Savior. And if you had that conversation this morning, I I need to hear from you. I want to hear from you. There's some of you in the room, and, and, and you've said yes to Jesus, but if you were honest, you have a Christianity with no Christ, and you started chasing other bread. And this morning, maybe as a, as, as a time for you to identify the bread you're chasing. And if you could, while we're singing this song, picture your hands in front of you with your, your fists clenched around whatever that bread is, the bread of success, athletic prowess, the bread, whatever you thought was going to satisfy this hunger. This morning, Jesus says, will you release it and begin feeding on the only bread that can bring you life? namely me and will you stay and worship me God I pray I pray this morning that as we sing this last song that it's the power of the name of the one who is the bread of life that would save strengthen sustain and satisfy us